God, we thank you, our Father. You're our spiritual Father. You're our God. And we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your Son. And today, God, we just want to thank you for the way in which you have provided uh, fathers for us. God, we thank you for fathers who today um, just struggle with being fathers, being present with their kids, and also working really hard at their jobs, and also trying to not negate the time that they have with kids and show their love. And we thank you for fathers who wrestle with that and really try and do a good job at being fathers and also uh, working hard at the jobs that they do. God, we pray for fathers who have been through separations and, and divorce and find it very hard uh, to still uh, love their kids in the way that they once did. And we just pray that you would be giving them grace and strength as they continue to try and show their love to their, their family and their kids. God, we pray for those who today um, are far from their fathers, whether it's been through broken relationships or whether their fathers have passed away. And God, we just pray that right now uh, we would know you as our heavenly father, the one that loves us and cares for us and watches over us every moment, and that we would find comfort tonight knowing that you are our father. And God, we pray for those that are fathers here. We just ask for strength in every every moment of every day to live as godly role models to our kids and to those that uh, look up to them. God, we pray that you'd help men to be courageous men who stand strongly on your word and love you with all that, all that we have. God, thank you for the privilege of being fathers and thank you uh, for the honour it is to look to you, our Heavenly Father, as we seek to be fathers in our lives. So God, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a privilege of sharing with you today. Um, this is our family. I, I can try and hold it. Okay, I'll sit down. Maybe that's the... No, you, you sit down, Natalie. Here we are. That doesn't look good at all. Okay. So, the picture you see up here... Now, I'm not used to sitting down, so I might stand if that's okay with you. The picture you see up here is something we put on our prayer card to introduce to people who we are and what we're going to do. So... Jonathan's just mentioned, I'm Warwick, this is my wife Natalie and our two kids, Hudson and Sahara. And they're going to go off stage, so you've seen them, you'll have to catch up with them later. Okay, so now maybe I'll sit down. Okay, so um, we're going to Niger in two weeks' time, and it seems like you might have already met my parents, but if you haven't, they're getting up to talk in a few moments. Um, they're part of the reason why we're going, but not the whole reason why we're going. The picture... You can see the map of Niger there. It's in West Africa. It's a very poor country. Um, roughly 15 million people live there, and most of them Muslim people. So the reason that we want to go to Niger is to help those who don't know who Jesus is to understand who he is. And Muslim people already know a bit about Jesus, but they just think he's a prophet, and they don't think that he died or that he rose again and that he was God's son. So we want to go there to help them understand who he is and what he's done for them and we think Jesus died for everyone, not just for us, so we want to go and tell them. And the picture on the top of this collage of photos is a photo of me. I was born there, and so that's part of how we had some interest in Niger. But the way that we started thinking about going to Niger was through some letters that mum and dad sent back to us. And there are the pictures in the top right and the bottom left. Dad in the top right sharing with some Fulani men, and mum with a Wudapbe lady called Labi. And the people they work with are nomadic people you can see the way they live in the other two photos 
And I'll just tell you just a quick story about how we became interested in going. Back in 93, after we'd spent, mum and dad had spent 17 years already in Niger, dad went back for a month's teaching, uh, months, months to go across the country teaching believers and those who didn't know about Jesus. And he met some men at one well where he stopped and he, he went with a Christian man and he said, um, we've come to tell, tell you the good news about how you can be forgiven by God. Would anyone like to have us back to their well, back to their home? And so these two men, Bamo and Tobiah, invited them back. And, and Dad and Dodie shared with their whole family that night the message of the gospel and who Jesus was and how he could be saved. And they talked about what it meant to live as a Christian. And the, that, the people listened very intently and they were just really listening and so the next morning when dad was about to leave he felt bad to just leave them without anything because they'd never heard the message before so he left them with a hand wine teaching cassette teaching cassette player and six teaching cassettes with a message of the bible in their own language and 12 years later when mum and dad went back again these men came to find them um they when they went back to the village where they first started out a few months after they got there bummer and tambaya came knocking on the door and um they mentioned they asked at the time oh do you recognize us and they're all excited and dad said oh no I don't recognize you you do look familiar though and they said well we met you 12 years ago when you came and you shared our well and that night you shared the gospel with us and we believed the message then and we turned away from Islam we stopped doing the um, Muslim prayers and we started living for Jesus and these men um, hadn't had any, any more teaching except those six teaching cassettes and their families and, and yet they'd held on to the gospel and they'd kept living for Jesus even though people would ridicule them and, and, and yet they kept holding on to the gospel. So when we heard this story and when mum and dad told us how these men had come looking for them each time they were coming past that town in their nomadic travels, they would ask after dad and the people would say, no, he doesn't live here anymore, stop bothering us. And, and yet in those 12 years they hadn't turned away from Jesus or turned away from God they'd held on to their faith and they just wanted to hear some more teaching so they came looking for dad and and so when we heard that story we felt well here in Australia it's so easy we can most of us can read um, I assume all of us probably can in this room um, we can easily get a bible we can easily hear the gospel if we want to there's many churches so we felt that's a very needy place where it's very hard for people to hear these people were seeking um, like you just mentioned then about Jeremiah if you seek God you're find him well these people were seeking but they didn't have anyone else to teach them so we felt um, that we were willing to go somewhere where it was hard to hear the gospel so we felt like Niger was a good option and a few years later mum and dad were spending more time with these men and they said to my parents we're a bit worried what might happen when you can't keep coming here they felt like mum and dad were getting old and they were just trying to see what would happen they said haven't you got any children who could teach us and so uh, mum and dad told them about us they hadn't known about us and they said Warwick and Natalie are keen to go somewhere but they're not sure where and and so then these men said well we'll pray for them that God will direct where they should go and and so when we got that um, mum wrote us an email telling us that story that really pricked our consciences and so that's what has led us to this um, place where we're getting ready to go out to Niger with my parents we want to um, we feel very privileged to be able to work alongside them and um, that God has really prepared the way that we can go and work with them for a time and then maybe when the time comes for them to stop working there then we can continue on the work that they've been doing. And there's so many people who are there who haven't yet heard the gospel um, that we hope to share it with and many who have heard it but haven't um, got a great understanding of what it means to live as a Christian. So we're hoping to go and um, learn the language and just get to know the people and, and help them in that way. 
I also trained at uni in agriculture and that's a great way to build friendships and help these people who are mostly subsistence farmers. Um, so we'll be able to help the people in that way too. So um, if you could um, remember us in your prayers, that would be great. We've got some prayer cards we'll have up the back and some of our newsletters if you want to get our letters and we can give those to you later. So thanks for the opportunity to share and I'll hand back to Jonathan. Um, how much longer it would be before we couldn't keep coming back and could we send our children to teach and work with them. But uh, Jonathan, thank you. It's great to be here. It's a real privilege and an honour for us to be here with you tonight and also especially to be with Warwick and Natalie too. We're looking very much forward to being out there with them in ministry with the Fulani and the Wadabi people. just been singing about Jesus being worthy, for you alone are worthy, Christ the Lord. And I'd like to read you a few words of our Lord Jesus just before he left his disciples, and they're here written in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16, and it says in that passage, Matthew 28, 16, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, just like we've been doing now. But some doubted. So here's the believers, still doubting something concerning Jesus. And then he says to these same disciples, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. We've been praying that what we share with you tonight might encourage you. But I want to confess that as I want to share, and Carol too, joining with me, share with you something of the pain and gain of making disciples. We just pray that it will be an encouragement to you. I want to confess that I don't find it easy to share with you about this because I realise that I have the potential of really encouraging you and enthusing you so that you will want to go and make disciples or else... I can just leave you as indifferent to it. Now, maybe you're already deeply engaged in making disciples, but remember these words of Jesus are for us, his disciples, those of us who know him as Lord, and he's telling us to go and make disciples of all people groups. Another reason that I feel find it difficult to share about this is that there are some who I've endeavoured to make disciples of Jesus, some Fulani friends, people here in Australia who I've endeavoured to make disciples who are no longer here. They've died, they've gone into eternity without becoming a disciple of Jesus. 
And it deeply saddens me when I realise that these people who could have believed didn't. And the word of God tells us that those who have not believed are condemned already because they have not believed in the only Son of God. And that is something that I find so difficult to think of. People, if only they had believed, they could know Christ not only while they were alive but for all eternity. But the Bible tells us that instead they have entered hell. It was as, young, as a young couple in our mid-twenties that Carol and I believed Jesus had called us to go and make disciples. Not just here at home, but we were challenged by the fact that there are so many people in the world today who still haven't got any idea of who Jesus is or why he came. And no one is there to tell them, to speak this message in their language. And God convicted me that the reason that there were so many people groups that hadn't heard about Jesus was because young people like me in their late teens were not thinking about these words of Jesus, but they were thinking, thinking like me about how we can live to suit ourselves and that is most convenient for me and living a self-centered life. And God convicted me and Jesus showed me in his word that it was because young people like me were not prepared to give up doing what I like to do to obey him because he's told us to go to all people groups and all nations and every appearance in the, of the resurrection Lord, resurrected Lord to his disciples before he left them was emphasizing that he wanted his disciples to go to all people groups and to make disciples. And here as a young person, I hadn't been motivated to do that at that point. But as I heard about the Fulani people and discovered that this Fulani nation of some 20 million people had no one to share with them in many parts of West Africa the gospel, Carol and I agreed that we must go. How could we refuse to take the gospel to them? Because Jesus says we can go in his authority, but he says go and make disciples. And what he really means is as you go, make disciples. Of course you would. If you know Jesus and your sin has been forgiven and you have eternal life and that your sin has been taken away from you as far as the east is from the west, well, surely you'll go and tell people. Of course we would. Of course we'll tell people. And we'll go to our university, we'll go to our neighbours and to our friends and we'll try to build relationships so that we can tell them how great he is because they don't know. And so even though I found it difficult and I had to die to my own self-centred plans of living on the farm, a family farm, and thinking how good that was and giving up the sport that I liked and enjoyed, leaving friends that I liked hanging out with and our family, which was a very close-knit family, in fear and trepidation. Carol and I left Australia in 1974 to go to Niger in West Africa. And uh, Carol's just going to come up and just share via the PowerPoint just something of what it was like for us to uh, work among these people uh, when we first arrived and something of the implications. We're trusting that technology works at Wadonga. It does. It's great to be here tonight. And um, Niger in West Africa is a different world, a world away from where we are. <laughs> Nothing happening here. 
I'll try again. There we go. Okay, now you can see where it is in um, central West Africa, surrounded by Libya, Algeria, Chad, Nigeria, seven countries around it. Niger is a country uh, which was part of French West Africa, so speaks, we speak French there. That's why we say Niger instead of Niger. The majority of the 15 million people live in the southern area and uh, maybe um, 20 million across West Africa. They are a pastoralist people. Cattle are their wealth and their inheritance, which makes it particularly devastating when drought strikes about every decade and they lose most of their herds. Most of the Fulani live separate from other people groups, away from the towns, roaming in remote regions. Some of them farm and their staple food is millet and black-eyed beans. Within the Fulani people, the Wadapi are one distinct clan and you might have seen um, TV documentaries about these people. They number about a quarter of a million. Sorry. Here they come. Um, but they are particularly nomadic. They do not stay in one place and they are less strictly attached to Islam. Their lives revolve around their cattle. And um, they spend long hours working at the well, the hub of activity each day. They move camp every three or four days, which makes it difficult for us to keep track of them. And you'll notice here how the women move with their donkeys with all their household possessions. And maybe students, you'd be able to do this, but most ladies would not be able to put all their household possessions on the back of a couple of donkeys and move like this. We trek out in our four-wheel drive vehicle to where they are. We camp with them and enter into their lives, eating their food, showing compassion, and teaching them where we find them. And we have found that many of them have become receptive. About two years after we arrived in Niger, uh, we had made a reasonable start. Um, the language was coming along fairly well, and we had begun to build relationships with more and more of these Fulani people and we as we trekked out to their wells and encampments. As we shared our children with them and uh, relationships were beginning to build more and more, and Carol was involved in medical work as well as we built relationships with them. And I could now accept and drink uh, their curdled milk that they brought to us, which was an honour to be given this curdled milk. Uh, although I must confess that the innards of the goats still didn't go down very well. But I have to confess I was struggling. I was missing home, missing work on the farm, and my dog, farm dog, a cattle sheep dog that I was really attached to, missing Australia. And there was still so much to learn. And I was fed up with the relentless heat and the sand and the dust that blows so often as you're out living among these people. And I still felt like an outsider, suffering because there was so little privacy in a communal culture. Felt the oppression of Islam, this religion that seemed to just invade every part of their society. And I remember how I endeavoured to share the good news of Jesus with my language informant, Umar Sanda, this tall, 
Fulani religious teacher who was also a herder. And as I endeavoured to do it one night and in the moonlight, just as he and I were sitting together, he looked at me and I could almost feel his eyes burning through me when he said, we Fulani are Muslims, you leave us alone. And I just felt so discouraged that here I'd left home and family and my own country and these Fulani people didn't even care or appreciate it. And I felt that, Lord, I've had enough. I want to go home. And in our, at our base, in the village in which we were based, our little house that we lived in had a corrugated iron ceiling, you know, the corrugations of bumps. And as I lay on my bed, as I looked across the ceiling, I counted 24 bumps. And that's 48, sorry, 48, uh, which I worked out because my maths is so good that that represented one bump for every month of this four-year term of 48 months. And as I counted these bumps, I couldn't even get halfway across the ceiling. And I was just so discouraged. And I guess I was perhaps feeling uh, somewhat depressed. And uh, as I was thinking about quitting and going home, it seemed to me as the Lord spoke to me, he said to me, what if I had said to my father, Father, I've had enough. I want to go home. And if Jesus had said that to the Father, instead of saying, not my will but yours be done, what would have happened to us? And it seemed to me that he was challenging me, what will happen to these Fulani and Wadapi people if you go up and go, go, give up and go home? And so I was deeply convicted and I realised that I had hardly begun to enter the culture of these people. And I thought of how Jesus left heaven and he came to earth and he left the perfect culture of heaven. And he came into this world and became flesh and he so identified with the Jewish people that they couldn't see that he was anything other than ordinary Jew. And here I was thinking of going home when I hadn't even hardly begun to identify with the Fulanis in their culture. And so I needed to humble myself and I realised that I needed to learn from Jesus how to identify with these people. I needed to be willing to serve them and to reflect his love, to be a servant among them and show that we cared for them. And we began to go out more and more to their encampments and share in their celebrations when there was a naming ceremony or when there was a wedding or when someone died, we would go to grieve with those who are grieving because a loved one had died and there's many deaths out there, I tell you. Many children die before they're five years of age. Many women die in childbirth. And uh, as we develop friendships with these people, opportunities opened up and developed. And we began to make deeper relationships with these Muslim people. And we discovered that we were able to share with them spiritual truth because as we lived among them, we not only began to learn their language better, but learned their worldview and what they believed and the things that were important to them and that they were afraid of the spirit world. And uh, we also discovered that some colleagues of ours south of the border, some Fulani friends who had become believers, had made a set of Bible dis of discovery cassettes, uh, Bible discovery cassettes of 23 lessons to help Fulani people understand God's plan of forgiveness. And we were able to get these cassettes that were voiced by a very gifted Fulani evangelist from down in Nigeria, just south of us. And these became a great tool for us to use to share God's plan with these people. And they would listen to these cassettes and you'd hear them as the cassette was being played. They'd say, Anani, 
a nanny. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? And they were so excited to hear of the good news of God, what he had done for them in Christ, that Jesus was not just a prophet, but that he is indeed the Saviour. And as our language developed, we began to understand something more of what it meant when Jesus said to us to go and make disciples. You know, I generally thought of making disciples as something of what you do with believers. You know, when someone becomes a Christian, they're just a new baby Christian. And so you disciple them and you work with them and show love to them and you teach them God's word so they become a a strong Christian. That's discipling believers. But when Jesus gave these words to his disciples, there weren't any believers. He wasn't talking about discipling believers. He was talking about discipling people who didn't know him. And he said, go and make disciples. And so we were challenged that we should be making disciples, not converts. People that really know who he was. And so with these cassettes and then as our language developed, we began to teach them God's plan of forgiveness through the scripture. And they began to see who Jesus really is and how he fitted into this plan. And uh, we want to just share with you how thankful we are that we didn't quit and come home, that we continued on from 1974 on through 1991 and then... As our children were going through university, we were home for about 13 years and then we were invited to come back by believers out there who said, couldn't you come back? We're praying and fasting that you might come back to Niger to work among us again and to work with us because there's so many people who still haven't heard and there are believers out in remote areas that are wanting teaching. Please come back and work with us. And uh, it was my friend Dodie who wrote that letter, the guy that uh, Warwick just referred to. And we are just so thankful that we didn't quit. And we want to just share with you again, briefly through the PowerPoint, just something of how God has just been at work, how his word has um, been germinating and how God is at work among these people and what Warwick and Natalie are going to join with us in doing. These are the two men, (coughs) Bummo and Tambaya, that Warwick referred to who with their families are being instrumental in introducing many of their people to the gospel. They're doing this by testimony and the use of cassettes. And it's in this context that we have the privilege of making disciples. Soon after we went back in October last year, we camped with them when their king was in the same camp and the king is sitting in the chair. He had already heard some teaching from them and had heard some through the cassettes and Phil was impressed by his interest. We knew that he was under intense pressure though because he is so often surrounded by Muslim teachers. We spent evenings with him around his campfire which was great because it was an uninterrupted time. One evening we were sitting on a mat close to his fire. It was getting late and Phil had been sharing with him and others during the evening. He paused often not wanting to confuse them with too much teaching at one time. However, every time he stopped for a break the king would say, Bismillamalam which means, go on, teacher, tell us more. As the night drew on to wind up the evening's teaching, Phil read from Luke 15, the story of the lost sheep, and he said to the king, tell me what this story, what does it make you feel? What does it speak to you about? And the king's reply surprised us. He said, we would out be of the lost sheep. We are in the darkness. We are nomads roaming in the bush with our herds. We are uneducated and ignored by others. But God cares about us. I'm amazed he has sent you to find us, to bring us the good news. 
to bring us into God's flock, just like that lost sheep. When we returned a few weeks later to join in celebrating the opening of their well, we brought with us Dodi, the believer from central Niger who had been with Phil in 1993 on that evangelistic trip across the country when Bamo and Tambaya had first heard the gospel. Over the next three days and nights, we built relationships with the extended families of their clan and had opportunity to teach God's word. They listened with interest to Dodi's testimony as he explained how and why he and his family had become disciples of Jesus. And then he spoke of the changes that this had brought to their lives. The king announced to his people that in the future he wanted them all to take every opportunity to learn about this new way. The young men had been preoccupied with their singing and dancing each night, but on the final morning they assembled as one large group near the king to pay him their respects before they returned home. Seeing them, Phil asked the king if it would be possible for Dodie to address them all, and he readily agreed. So Dodie shared his testimony with these young men. He said that like them, he had lived for his cattle and for sensual pleasures. During the two droughts of the 1970s and 80s, when many animals had died, he saw how sickness and death strike so harshly, both man and beast, how life can become so meaningless. He had not thought about death until these things struck him personally. Then he came to know about Jesus, the Good Shepherd, the only one who has power over sin and death, who gives new meaning to life now and for eternity. The young men listened intently as they heard this message for the first time. Within the month we were back, and this time with Tambaya, another Wadapi believer. Tambaya's message was on what it means to belong to Jesus and how to live a life of love. I was encouraged the next day to hear the women talking together and explaining the teaching they'd heard to their relatives and friends of how they should live differently now that they are followers of Jesus. Then the week before Christmas, four of the men, including the king, attended a short-term Fulani Bible school or conference 300 kilometres west of us. And it was here that the king publicly and for the first time confessed that he too is a follower of Jesus. On Christmas Eve, we returned to their camp. We wanted to be with them to praise God for his wonderful gift. As we sang and read and prayed together under the full moon with the animals nearby, it wasn't difficult to picture the shepherds being visited 2,000 years ago with the news that a saviour had been born for all people. <laughs> this is timed. <laughs> Since then, we have seen how the king has stopped doing the Muslim prayers, which is a very significant thing. And the religious teachers have left him alone, insulted that he no longer listens to them. He and several others attended a national Fulani conference with us in March and were further strengthened in their faith. They want all of their clan to hear the good news and become followers of Jesus. They are playing the teaching cassettes at every opportunity and passing them on to visiting relatives who take them back to their families. We distributed over 30 of the global recording hand wine cassette players and many cassettes to people, to those who already own a player. We believe God is using cassettes and the testimony of believers in remarkable ways to reach these nomadic people, even in places we have never been.
We are really excited to see that God is going ahead of us and working wonderfully in individual lives. <coughs> Together in partnership with God's people, we are seeing Christ's kingdom grow among the nomads of Niger. Well, as we draw things to a close this evening, because I've got to remember we're not out there with the Wadapi and Fulani tonight where time doesn't really mean so much and you know, they keep saying, Bismillah, Bismillah, go on, teach more, go on, teach more. I tell you, they're really hungry to know God. But the trouble is there's not many to teach them. And so now we have the challenge of answering this question. A number of them ask us, an increasing number, how do I live now as a follower of Jesus? We know how to live as Muslims, but how do we live as followers of Jesus? And we have the privilege of teaching them that, of opening God's word and reading in their own language and explaining it to them. Would you like to be part of that? How would you like to join Warwick and Natalie and come out because they'll probably get tired of their parents. You know? They'd like a bit of young, uh, younger stock out there too. And uh, yeah... But seriously, it's true that there are just so many opportunities. But I would just like to ask you as we wind this up tonight, are you making disciples? Do you understand the privilege that it is for you to be a disciple? If you'd been at uh, the Geelong St Kilda match today, how many people there do you think would have been believers? What percentage? Would it be 20%? Doubt it. In your community, how many people in your street do you think would be really believers? Or in your university, are you making disciples? I was talking to someone this morning after lunch at a church we were at this morning, and I asked him, I said, Oh, when did you become a believer? How did it happen? And he said, oh, I'm a panel beater. And a Christian came with his car, was knocked up, and he befriended me. And he told me about Jesus. And I became a believer. He said, I didn't have a clue what it was to be a Christian. He said, my mother taught me a few things, and I went to Sunday school for a while. And now he's a believer. Are you making disciples? Well, we've talked about the great privilege of being a disciple of Jesus when so few don't understand. It's an honour to be a Christian. It's an honour to know who Jesus is, but it's a great privilege and honour too to not only be a believer and be a disciple, but to make disciples. And I want to just say, as we leave you tonight, I'd like to challenge you about the reality of discipleship as it relates to you and to us, because we need to constantly be checking ourselves. I have a question do you really believe that people outside of Jesus are lost? Are heading for a Christless eternity? Do you believe the words of Jesus when he says that they who do not know him, they who have not believed are condemned already because they have not believed in him? Whether it's your friends or your neighbours, your family members, or whether it's Fulani and Wadapi people, you know, in our eastern area of Niger, there are three people groups that have no one bringing the gospel to them. There's the mongers, 
And there's something like nearly a million of them in Niger in that eastern corner, let alone over into Nigeria. There's the Arab nomads, the herders. And our son Brendan and his wife, Warwick's older brother, he and his wife are preparing to go to France as soon as they're able to get their support together so they can learn French and then learn Arabic so that they can go out to these people. And in February of this year, Carol and I went up to the desert into this area where these Arab nomads are, where they're camel herders, and we just were so welcomed by these hospitable people. But we couldn't share the gospel in Arabic because we don't know it. And we tried to do it in French and, and we gathered that this guy who was interpreting in French didn't really do it all that accurately because he probably didn't want the people to hear exactly what we were saying about the gospel. But would any of you be willing to go and join Brendan and Virginia to join them to try and bring the gospel to these Arab people who are going to a Christless eternity? And then there's Tubu people, there's others too. I wonder... Do we really believe that people outside of Jesus are lost? Do we understand, do you understand that Jesus has given us this task? Us. And I sometimes have had the excuse, well, Lord, who am I to do it? That's what I said to Jesus when he called us to the Fulani. Who am I to go out there? I'm just so inadequate. I haven't been to university. I haven't got any qualification. I was only a farmer. And Jesus challenged me by reminding me that he uses weak vessels, weak earthen vessels. And so he cannot use the excuse that we're too weak or too inadequate. That's one of the qualifications because he pours his power and his equipping into us. We go in the power of his spirit. But we don't wait till you get the power and the sense of assurance before you go. It's as we go that he gives us the strength. It's as we obey. I wonder you proving that where you are in making disciples. But he will enable you to do that to people groups like the Arabs and the Tubus who have no one to tell them. I wonder, can I ask you another question? Do you know what it means to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus? Do you know what it means to suffer for Jesus? To turn your back on your own will When Jesus said that we are to take up our cross daily, what is a cross? A cross is a place of death. It's not something you hang around your neck as an ornament. It means that we are to die to our own will and our own selfish interests and to our own comforts. And we must be prepared to die to that if the gospel is going to get out to people in Australia or among the Fulani and Wadapi people. But are we willing to do that? I wonder, are we willing to live differently? We are told in the scripture that we are to be holy as he is holy, writing to believers, to any believer. We are to live like Jesus, and we're not to live like the world. But today, it's so difficult to see the difference between the world and the believer because we've become so accustomed to sort of being squeezed into the world's mold. And we are not to put a stumbling block in anyone's way, the Apostle Paul said. I'd really ask you to pray for us in that, that we won't do that. But I'd like to remind you that he sends us with his authority. We go in his power and we say to Warwick and Natalie that Jesus said, I am with you always. And he really is and he is so faithful. 
And so to make disciples takes long-term commitment in building relationships. It means using the gifts and skills that God has given us as a platform for making disciples. So whether it's agriculture or teaching or sport or medical, uh, medical um, knowledge and ability or music, these things are to be used not for our profit and gain, but that it might be a platform to make disciples of Jesus. It means investing our very lives. It means that we are making disciples. Not only are we investing our lives in making disciples, but it's also the focus of our prayers. Would you say that if you analyse your prayer life that making disciples is a high priority in your prayer life? Or is your prayer sort of focused on other things? And what about our resources? It means investing our resources for the gospel. That the things that we have, we recognize that we're just stewards, that God has given them to us, that we might be able to manage them for the best, for making disciples. And I appeal to you, young people and everybody here tonight, I appeal to you to remember that these are the words of Jesus our Lord. And if we are really serious, he says, and this is what we have to do among the Fulani people. He says that after people have been made disciples, we are to teach them to obey. How are you going to obey these words? And we have to obey Jesus if we're going to teach the Fulani people how to obey. I hope that you don't think that making disciples or mission is just for people who have a fad in mission. And that if you have got a fad in mission, oh, well, that's fine. But that's not my thing. My thing is something else. If we are followers and disciples of Jesus, we, all of us, must be encapsulated by, the, by this task of making disciples. And so, as I close, I would just like to again say that making disciples involves being prepared to lay down our very lives for Jesus. Not only laying down our lives for Jesus, but for lost people and laying down our lives for his church. An African believer wrote this as a comment about the Great Commission. I'd like to close by using his quote and I would also like to encourage you that if we can be of any encouragement to you. would be happy to talk to you afterwards. If any of you would like to pray for us, especially for Warwick and Natalie, then uh, we would be happy to give you, to take your email if we can send you news. But our main prayer in being here tonight is to encourage you in making disciples and being obedient disciples of Jesus. So I close with this quote, which is a quote on a commentary, an African commentator who has written a, Bible commentary on this verse. Therefore, go and make disciples of all people groups, all nations. The Great Commission is given by the highest authority in the universe and it is binding on all disciples for all time. No other task comes with the same authority and the same universal scope or the same eternal consequences. To go into the world and make disciples of all nations is the most exciting 
most urgent and most necessary task in all the world. God bless you and thank you, Jonathan. Well, thanks, Phil and Carol. And I think God is uh, speaking to us through his words as Jesus spoke those words to his disciples on that mountain um, as he said go into all the world I think he's saying that to you and I tonight and I think he's uh, speaking directly to many of you about uh, giving your whole life in uh, mission overseas and it could be that tonight there's so many questions running around your mind as you sense the words of Jesus speaking directly to you it could be uh, I'm not prepared you know I don't have any money or I don't have any training or I uh, you know haven't even finished my college or maybe you have and and you just got questions going around but as Phil said you know God uses weak vessels and as you go he goes with you and helps you and I think all that Christ asks is that we respond and um, and we say yes to him so I'm just going to pray and uh, the God calls followers of Christ to go. And, uh, the, you know, we don't get to just sit back and choose about that. And whether it's here or whether it's overseas, we must be making disciples. And I sense tonight he might be talking to many of us about going overseas. So why don't we pray uh, together now? God, we thank you for your word. You speak to us from that mountain tonight. Go into all the world. Make disciples. We hear you say, promising that you'll be with us always. We know your word says that you've been given all authority as you give us these commands. And God, as you speak to us tonight, I just pray for those particularly that you're touching. And maybe in these moments of quietness, you might just say yes to God. You don't know how, you don't know where, but just say yes. Uh, you, you will respond to where he's leading and where he's calling God we thank you so much for Phil and for Carol for their willingness to take up their cross daily and to follow you God we thank you so much that their family has caught their vision and their response to obedience in your call. And God, we pray for them as a church tonight. We just ask that you would strengthen Phil and Carol as they go back, Warwick and Natalie, and the kids as well. And God, that you would continue to help them to minister and make disciples in Niger. God, we pray too for Brendan and Virginia amongst the Arab nomads. 
And God, we pray that you would be sending disciples as we respond to your call. And we ask, God, for us, each and every one of us tonight, who knows you and loves you, that the Great Commission will be our daily prayer here in Wodonga, that we would be seeking in every interaction to prayerfully responding to your promptings as we share the gospel with people in our lives. God, thank you for this challenge. Thank you for leading Phil and Carol to be here tonight. We've heard just your voice in the midst of your word. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. After the service, we just want to encourage you to really continue to respond. And uh, it'd be great if you wanted to talk to Phil and Carol or to Warwick and Natalie, uh, to Marg, if you feel like uh, you've just been wanting to respond and, and get more engaged in mission. We've got a passionate mission watch team. There's a team that's going to Malawi next year. And if you're interested in going on that trip, um, it would be great to, to talk uh, as a maybe one of your first uh, steps as well. But um, don't, just keep responding. Keep responding to what God is saying to you. We're gonna